Welcome to this message from Port Life Church. Our goal is to bring life to the Port community and beyond. And our hope is that this message will inspire and encourage you today. Well, good morning, everyone. How are we going today? Good morning to all those watching online as well. Great to have you with us. Um, today, I'm excited to continue on with our Purpose Driven Life series. And I am speaking on purpose number three, which we haven't been advertising them. So it's a surprise when you get here. Purpose number three is created to become more like Jesus or created to become like Jesus. This is very, very important. Very, very important. One of the things that I've realized about um, people and that we all do, every single one of us, one of the things we do is we often live our life trying to be like other people. We don't realize that we're doing this most of the time. We would go, no, you can't tell me that. I live my life autonomously and I just be me and that's all good. But we actually pick up things from people all the time. And whether we like it or not, we do spend a lot of our lives kind of trying to emulate others in some way, shape or form. It might be friends that we want to be like, parents, celebrities, heroes, successful people. You know, if they're successful, if they've got a lot of wealth, maybe if I be like them, then I will be like that too and I'll get a lot of wealth. I'll be successful. Uh, It might even be characters from TV shows. I don't know. There's all kinds of people that we want to be like. Someone might even desire to be like you. Scary. (laughs) Yeah, I I try to be like Max. That's what I want to do with my life. Um, But someone might try and be like you. Seriously, it's a little bit scary to think about that. And this concept that we try and become like others around us starts when we're pretty young. For my three-year-old daughter, Evie, at the moment, she tries to be a bit like this. That's who she wants to be. Uh, She'll just sometimes just be like, I'm Peppa Pig. You're Daddy Pig. On other days, she wants to be one of these two people. And depending on the day, uh, she'll, she'll pick one of them that she wants to be and then she'll tell me I'm the other one. So lucky me. If she's decided to be Elsa that day, I'm Anna. And if she's decided to be Anna, I'm Elsa. I like being Elsa because then I have powers and I can freeze her, which is good. (laughs) For me, uh, there's a number of different people or things that I wanted to be when I was growing up because I think they kind of progress in stages, don't they? When you're younger, you want to be like different things and so on. When I was quite young, I wanted to be like one of these guys particularly the blue guy who looks a bit angry there now that I'm thinking about it. The green guy's pretty happy. I don't know what that scene's from, but I wanted to be like Thomas the Tank. He was my hero as a, as a young boy. Uh, and then as I kind of grew into preteen stage of my life and was watching cheese TV every morning and getting up and loving life, I wanted to be like this guy. Um, I wanted to be like Ash Ketchum for a long time. Uh, that's from Pokemon for anyone who's too old or too young to care about that. Ash was one of my Uh, you know, big heroes at the time. Uh, And then later on in life, when I was a teen, uh, things progressed and kind of went downhill a bit and I eventually wanted to be this guy. (laughs) The greatest man who's ever lived. (laughs) Oh dear. So uh, someone said Jesus. Come on. No, so uh, obviously things went pretty, you know, quite downhill in my life around that, around that time, but um, it was good and, and I've since matured significantly and, you know, don't want to be like Dane Swan. I just realised I couldn't go through the pain of getting all those sleeve tattoos, so I've had to change my direction in life. But as I said, 
We often live our life trying to become like other people in some way, shape or form, whether we realise it or not. We pick up things, we pick up mannerisms, all kinds of things. And that pursuit can be helpful sometimes or really, really unhelpful in the case of the Dane Swan, Peppa Pig situation. But, you know, when it comes to God and his desire and his will for us, the only person he desires us to be like is his son, Jesus. That's the only one that he cares about that we're like. We can, we can pick up things from other people in our lives, helpful, unhelpful, but at the end of the day, God just wants to know that we are growing and changing and developing to become more and more like his son. And he knows that if we grow and develop and change, awkward, itchy eye during preaching, if we grow and develop and change to become like his son, then we're growing and developing and changing to become like him because Jesus tells us that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We are, we are one. I am in the Father. He is in me. I am in you. You are in me. And so if we are becoming like Jesus, we are also becoming like our creator God, which is pretty cool. In fact, this idea that we would become like Jesus is one of the key reasons we exist, part of, a large part of our purpose. Romans 8, 29 says, For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. Why did he choose them? Why did he choose you? To become like his son. He didn't, note that it doesn't say that he chose us so that we could have the best job out of everyone at church, that we could have the best car, that we could be the coolest, that we could be whatever it is, have a million kids, whatever the thing is, or have the best holidays, the best Instagram, anything that we can think of. It doesn't say any of that. It says he chose us. Why? To become like his son. That is our purpose. But becoming like Jesus isn't something that just happens overnight. You don't go from being not a Christian at all to accepting Jesus and then the next day you wake up and go, wow, I'm just like healing people left and right. I'm just so lovely now and I was a scumbag before. These things don't just happen like this. Rather, becoming like Jesus is a lifelong thing, a lifelong process which we call discipleship. We are all called to be disciples of Jesus and being a disciple of Jesus really means to follow him and um, model our lives on him in every way that we can and every way that we see fit to. Our lives, therefore, should be one long story. If we are disciples of Jesus, our lives should be one long progressive story of growing in every way more and more like Christ, as Paul writes to the Ephesian church in chapter 4, verse 15. Martin Luther, who, uh, if you know a little bit about church history in the, I think it was the 1500s from memory, he led the Protestant Reformation. Without Martin Luther, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't have things like this idea that grace from God is free, that it's not our works and our effort that cause us to be saved, but God's goodness as revealed through Jesus dying on the cross for us. Martin Luther uh, changed history and, and because of him, in a way, we are here today. He said, that as disciples of Jesus, we are to be or to become in our lives like little Christs. Each one of us is to become like little Christs. That is the purpose of our life. So how does God do it? How does God make us from what we are and bring us to being more and more and more progressively progressively like Jesus? Well, there's a few ways that we talk about in church and church services often. Uh, probably three main ways that we regularly communicate. And these aren't the ones I'm focusing on today, but I will mention them. The first is through the Bible, through us engaging with Scripture. 
Rick Warren says that it takes truth to transform us. And that is true. It takes truth to transform us. You know, when we are reading the Bible, it might not feel like there's anything crazy or supernatural occurring. We might not get all the feels and the vibes, but the fact of the matter is there is something spiritual that happens when we engage with God's Word because we are told the Word is living and active. It is not dead. So when we read the Word, when we engage with God's Word, it is living and active and causing things to happen beyond what we can see with our eyes. This is why we're told to set our eyes on things that are above or things not of this world, not the things of this world, because that is where God operates continuously. So there's the Bible, the scripture. Then there's also prayer. In my opinion, you can't become much like someone that you don't know. And prayer is our way of experiencing and and understanding God more and more, understanding Jesus and his heart, as well as him understanding and getting to know us. Obviously, we know that God knows us fully already. The word says that he knows every hair on our head. But through prayer, just like through conversing and relating to friends and family, we develop friends, friendships and family relationships over time. We grow in those relationships as we communicate, as we share together, as we begin to identify with each other's uh, struggles and highs and lows. And this is what prayer does. It's a place where we can come and we can pour out our heart to God and begin to learn to listen to his heart for us as well. And again, like with reading scripture, it's not always going to be this thing where we get all the bubbles and the feels and go, ooh, I'm praying and now all of a sudden everything's better. Or sometimes, you know what, if you're really honest, when you're praying, it's going to feel like you're praying to a brick wall. It's going to feel like no one's there, nothing's happening, and it's doing nothing. You're just talking to yourself, if you're really, really honest. But once again, just like God's word is living and active, we serve a living and active God. He is there. Just because he is unseen doesn't mean he is not there. Just because I can't see the oxygen that I breathe in doesn't mean it's not there. There is something that is occurring when we begin to learn to share our heart with God and begin to learn to listen to his heart for us. Prayer helps us become more like Jesus. And finally, as Sally talked about last week, is the church. Gathering together as believers in this local congregation and overall Christian people everywhere. Uh, You know, in social studies or I'm not sure the exact field, but you can, you can find that what people find is that and what they've researched is that people generally flock to people that are like them. As human beings, we generally, generally associate with people that are similar in um, class, education, uh, sometimes even backgrounds, family environments, all kinds of things. We tend to flock together a little bit. We don't necessarily love diversity naturally it's something that you know friendship groups and so on we tend to just have things where others are just like us and we're seen to associate with people that are just like us this is a normal natural human thing to do we're trying to find our people right the church is completely different the church in its local expression especially but all over the world is like this melting pot where all of us in our diverse backgrounds family environments opinions political whatever, socioeconomic status, all kinds of things, we all kind of melt and blend into one together. And the word says that when this happens, Proverbs 27, 17 says that iron sharpens iron. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And when we blend together in this local congregation, this local church that we call here Port Life, we are iron sharpening iron. We are not all the same. We're going to disagree. We're going to have issues at times. There's all kinds of things which crop up when you're dealing with people that are not just exactly the same as you. 
but Jesus instigated and instituted the church so that we could grow and develop and become more like him through relating to one another. You know, when iron sharpens iron, there's a lot of clanging that goes on. Just let that ring true for a little minute there. It's the same when we relate to other believers. At times there's a bit of clanging that goes on. At times there's disagreements. At times it's a struggle. But we can be assured because Scripture tells us so, because God shows us so, that as that is happening, we are actually becoming more like Jesus. We're being exposed to other ways of thinking, other ways of practicing faith and all kinds of things, but we're coming together with the one goal of glorifying Jesus and getting to know his heart and his word for all of us, not just what we think is right. So Bible, prayer and church, these are three things which we talk about a lot. Almost every sermon relates back to these in some way, engaging more with the Bible, engaging more with prayer or, you know, being at church together. But these aren't the only ways that God can seek to make us more like Jesus. There are many others. In fact, the key scripture today is Romans 8.28, which says that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And those who are called according to his purpose is us. That scripture is talking about us, believers, Christians, me and you. God causes things to work together for us, for the good of us. And the good that's being discussed here, the good that he's talking about here is us becoming more like Jesus. That is the ultimate good that God can see. He works all things, this scripture tells us, that we might become more like Jesus. Not just that we might have good things or do good things in life, but we might actually be the good thing, which is that picture of Jesus here in this world, that little Christ, as Martin Luther put it. So we're told here that God can use everything, everything in life to bring this about, to bring about us becoming more like Jesus. He can use the positive, the negative, the simple, the complex, complicated, whatever else. God can use every season and situation to aid in your transformation to become more like his son Jesus. Isn't that good news? He can use everything. You say everything. Just making sure you're awake. Everything to aid in your transformation. But especially, it turns out, and this is where it gets a little bit scary for all of us, especially the challenging situations, especially some of the situations and circumstances that perhaps we wouldn't think that God could use. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying here. What I'm not saying is, I'm not saying that, you know, God's going to cause you to have, you know, go home today and have a car accident just so that he can like teach you a lesson in being more like Jesus and blah, 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 blah. God's not causing these things to happen to you. Bad situations, negative circumstance and things like that that come along. God, I'm not saying God causes these things. But what I am saying is that in Romans 8.28, we see that whereas what's being communicated to us by Paul who wrote it is that regardless of who caused it, God can use it. Regardless of who caused it, God can use it. Every season, every situation, every circumstance, no matter what causes it, people, devil, otherwise, whatever you believe with that, and that's a sermon for another time, but whatever you believe with that, God can use it and he will use it. It actually reminds me a little bit of, uh, and the way that this process works is it reminds me of 
a great cooking show. It reminds me of this cooking show. <laughs> Ready, steady, cook. Anyone seen Ready, Steady, Cook? I couldn't get a high-res image of it because it was from like the 1900s or something. So Ready, Steady, Cook used to be the show that I would watch if I was home sick from school uh, because it got put to non-prime time after about five minutes of being on. It was one of the last, you know, great, you know, audience participation um, TV shows. And uh, I've forgotten that guy's name, but he was all right. And, and at one point in the show, and the reason why it reminds me that, you know, God can use all things for our good regardless of who caused it, one of the key parts and maybe the most interesting part of the show it was the mystery bag part where I think they get an audience member up and they had particular items in their bag and the chef didn't know uh, what those items were. And usually they were things that didn't work well together. You know, they kind of intentionally made it a bit bizarre. It's like, oh, here's tuna and then here's some, I don't know, ice cream and then here's this and that. And, and they, would, they would slowly but surely take the things out of this mystery bag and show the chef. And I think this is where Manu actually started. For those of you who know who Manu is, I think he was actually on this. And they would, they would show the chef and the chef and the audience would be like, oh, oh, no. Oh, every new item. Oh, asparagus. You know, and then it was this situation of, man, what the heck are they going to do with all these ingredients? Because they had to use every single one. How are they going to make this something good? But you know what? Inevitably, every single time the chef was able to make something good out of whatever came out of that bag, right? And the thing is with us, it's quite, it's similar in principle, but it's different because God actually knows what's coming in your life. He's not the chef who's surprised when things come up and going, oh, no. What am I going to do now? You know, this situation happened. How am I going to work that together for good? No, he, he foreknew what our lives would be like. He knew what would be coming for you today, tomorrow and any other day. And as hard as that can be to grapple with at times, um, he can use every single circumstance just as the chef used that mystery, those mystery bag items to create something good in your life, to bring something good. And the good that he works is that you would become like his son. And so today I just really quickly want to have a look at one big bad mystery bag item, I'm calling it, that God can use that comes up in your life, that comes up in all of our lives, causes us to stress, causes us problems, issues. Um, I want to look at this one particular thing that, can, that God can use to develop you, to make you more like Jesus that perhaps you wouldn't have expected initially. And the thing that he can use, that mystery bag item, is trouble. Have we got the, yeah, there we go. <laughs> Trouble. You get it. John 16, 33, Jesus said, In this world you will, everyone say will, have trouble. You didn't actually have to say those last two, but that's okay. It's good. I like the participation. In this world you will have trouble. Trouble. He didn't say you might have trouble. If you get in with the wrong crowd, you'll have trouble, though that might be true. If you, you know, don't live a good life, then you're going to have trouble. No, he said you will have trouble. The inference is you can do everything right. You're still going to have trouble. Things are still going to happen. The Greek word for trouble here, and, and the New Testament was of the Bible was written in Greek, which is why I'm referring to it for those who aren't aware of that. Greek words have like a lot more um, carry a lot more meaning. Uh, they almost carry picture meanings with them, not just, you know, we say trouble and it's like, oh, yeah, but 
the, the Greek meanings can sometimes be helpful for understanding what was meant by um, the people who said it or wrote it. And the Greek word that Paul uses, uh, sorry, that, that Jesus uses or that's recorded that Jesus said is thlipsis. And uh, you're probably never going to use that word in life ever again, but the Greek word for trouble in this particular case is thlipsis. And we read that this word means pressure, something that constricts, used of a narrow place that hems someone in, tribulation, especially internal pressure that causes someone to feel confined, restricted or without options. In this world, Jesus says, you will have pressure that constricts you, that makes you feel like you're in this narrow place where you are hemmed in. You will have tribulation that causes you internal pressure, that causes you to feel confined, restricted and without options. Every single one of us. And you know, as I said, God doesn't give us this trouble. But Jesus says we will have it because we live in a world that is affected by sin. God created the garden. He created Adam and Eve, sin, uh, death, disease, all these kinds of things were not there through man and, and woman's rebellion from God. The blessing of God, which was that perfection, began to fade and fade and fade. We see illness and murder and all kinds of things begin to come into play only years after the first rebellion against God. And this isn't because God hates humanity, he loves humanity, and this is why he sent his son to redeem it, that we might have a hope and a future. But sin has ruined or has um, caused this world to be degraded over time. And this is why these troubles come. We're affected not only by the, the randomness of, of, of things like illness and disease and all kinds of things, but also by our own choices, by other people's choices that affect us. There's all kinds of things in this world that can give us trouble. It won't take you long to picture what trouble might look like because you see it all over the news constantly or, unfortunately, you've probably had your own experiences with it. There's some people in this room today that have experienced trouble beyond what I ever feel I could bear myself. And yet here you are. Troubles could be as simple as temptations that you're battling. Every single one of us goes through that. Or someone has wronged you and you're struggling to forgive. It could be an inescapable diagnosis of yourself or a loved one. It could be a loss you've had or a loss you're preparing for. It could be a severe rift in a relationship or many. It could even be some kind of persecution for faith, for your faith. It could be any number of things ranging in severity and, and, and you'll know. You know what trouble is and, and as I said, you've probably experienced it or seen it in someone else. These situations and many more put pressure on us, often beyond what we feel we can bear. They constrict us, they hem us in, they make us feel at times like there is no way out. And so the question is, how can God possibly bring good out of any of this? How can God use such craziness, such awfulness to bring any kind of good? When we consider the troubles that can crop up in people's lives, that we, the things we see on the news, sometimes it almost feels insulting to read that verse, that God can use all things, work all things together for good. It feels awkward because it's like, how can he possibly in that situation? How can God possibly use such things to make people more like Jesus, to make me more like Jesus when I experience these? The guy called the Apostle Paul, who I've already referred to, wrote in the first century AD to a very troubled church in Rome. 
And I've referred to this letter again already, the, ch- the letter to the Romans, or we just say Romans. And Paul wrote to this church that was experiencing all things from, from racism through to um, uh, relationship breakdowns. He had issues between the Jewish believers and Gentile, non-Jewish believers that were there. They didn't like each other. They were struggling with one another. They had persecution from an awful Roman government. This is thought to be not long before the great fire of Rome, which ended up getting blamed on the Christians by Emperor Nero. Some of you may have heard about this situation. Um, There was all kinds of political pressures there because uh, Christianity at this period of time was not recognised as a a religion. There were a lot of religions in the the, um, Roman Empire, but Christianity at that point in time was not really officially one. It was seen as a troublemaking thing because Christians were doing weird, bizarre things like caring for the poor. Who would do that of of their own volition? Who would go and give their money and their property and their, who would actually sacrifice for people? What, what is going on here? They're clearly trying to stir up trouble. They're clearly some form of sect. They're clearly some form of cult and that's how the government at the time viewed them. They were seen as troublemakers and Paul wrote into this environment that, that was facing internal and external troubles and he said, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, that word flips us, for we know that they help us develop endurance or other translations say perseverance. And endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. So the answer to how can God possibly use these things, these troubles, these circumstances to make us more like his son Jesus, the answer is that God uses trouble to develop godly character in us. God uses trouble to develop godly character in us. And you know, there's Leadership and behavioural scholars, some works that I've read recently which talk about this concept of dissonance, maybe not in the form we've thought of dissonance before, but in terms of their, their studies, they talk about dissonance being any situation where something happens that is against what we thought would happen. It's different to our expectation. The reality changes our expectation or, or comes up against our expectation and, and, and shocks us. It makes us kind of step back and go, hold on. Why did that just happen? And trouble causes dissonance in us. It causes us to kind of step back and go, oh, hold on, why did that happen? And the key thing about dissonance, they say, is that people change the most when dissonance is present. People change their behaviours the most when dissonance comes along. When a situation causes dissonance in them, their behaviour changes. Our behaviour changes. It happens all the time. If you say, to your wife, hey, can you bake me a cake? And then she slaps you in the face. That's going to change your behaviour. You might ask or not ask differently next time. You see what I mean? It's a very silly example, but that's what dissonance is. Hold on. I just expected a cake would be baked. Oh, I got slapped in the face. Now I'm maybe going to change how I go about things. Dissonance changes behaviour. Trouble brings dissonance. When trouble comes along in your life, it will bring a moment of dissonance where you step back and go, whoa, and change will occur. Normally, that change will be negative. Normally, that change will be bad. Normally, that change will be things like you'll go from being a hopeful person to a hopeless person. Normally, it'll be things like I'm a positive person or, or, or just a normal, everyday human being, and now I'm, I'm, I'm becoming bitter or I'm not going to trust people anymore, or I'm going to start hating the, those kinds of people that, because this person did that to me or whatever it is. 
Dissonance causes change in us. God sees that trouble comes along and causes dissonance in you and he and he alone is uniquely placed to bring something good out of that dissonance. You are going to change when dissonance come, comes regardless. God wants to use it to bring good change rather than the normal negative that is naturally going to occur otherwise. God is the only one that can bring that in you. God is the only one who can bring about something good from something awful. And this is why, you know, we read rejoice in trouble, and I hate that. Who's going to do that? In, in another part of Scripture, Josh preached on this a little while ago, uh, James chapter 1, he says a similar thing. James writes to a persecuted church in Jerusalem and he says, consider it joy when the negative things happen, when you get persecuted, when all these things happen to you. Consider it joy. Woo! No. I don't think anyone is realistically probably going to do that in terms of start jumping up for joy when something bad happens to them. But what the joy comes from is knowing that this is not going to be all for nothing. Okay, and I know this is a hard word because we kind of go, well, yeah, but we'd just rather it not happen in the first place. I understand that. But it's things are going to happen. Trouble is going to come. The joy comes from going, at least God can bring something out of this because I myself would not be able to. There is joy there that otherwise I would not have if I wasn't following God. But why is it important to God that we develop godly character? Well, just very quickly, I want to give you three reasons why this is important. The first reason that God desires to develop godly character in us is that our character determines our deeds, our actions. From our character flows our actions. Your character influences your choices. What kind of life you choose to live, what kind of worker you choose to be, what kind of spouse, husband, wife, friend, family member, parent you choose to be, what kind of morals you have, how you treat others. All of these things are impacted by your character. And we, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, are called to represent Jesus in all these areas and all these things. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we are called to be Christ's ambassadors, as though God is making his appeal through us. God isn't kind of like literally walking, down, well, he did at one point through Jesus, but God isn't literally walking around going, hey, you should be Christians. No, we are the ones doing that. We are the ones through which God is making his appeal to the whole earth. We are Christ's ambassadors and therefore it is important that we act like or are like the one whom we are representing, which is God, which is Jesus. We can't do this without godly character growing in us over time. And unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know which way you want to look at it, trouble is a key vehicle for this godly character developing. Trouble is a key vehicle for this developing. The second reason why godly character is important to God, why he desires this to occur, is that our character has eternal importance. Rick Warren writes that you're not taking your career to heaven with you, but you are taking your character. You're not taking your career to heaven, but you are taking your character. One thing that this, a thought that this kind of brought up for me is that I don't know if, if you've realised this too, but in, um, particularly in the West, in, in secular society, um, that we all participate in through just going about our daily lives. Secular society is trying to create a utopia for humanity. Uh, I know this sounds a little weird, but it's true where no one feels pain, no one is inconvenienced, no one gets damaged, no one gets their feelings hurt, no one has to want for anything. We're all sufficient. And all these things are mostly good, aren't they? 
you know, it's, it's good not to feel pain. We don't want to have to feel that. It's good to have sufficiency, all those kinds of things. And this is the kind of um, thing society wants in the West. It wants to create this utopia, this, this picture where we are sufficient, where we're not offended, where there's all kinds of good things happening to and through and, and from all of us. But the issue is that in the long term, this won't work. It will work to varying extents and it's good and we should support government and all kinds of things. But why won't this work? Because the utopia that humanity is trying to create for itself is heaven. All these things describe what heaven is. The only place where all those things exist eternally is heaven. We only get little fleeting moments of seeing these things here on earth. A guy called Mark Sayers who leads a church called Red Church in in Melbourne says, the world is trying to create the kingdom without the king. They're trying to create all the elements and aspects of the kingdom of God. When people went to Jesus and said, where is the kingdom of God? Can you show us? Can you point to it? He said, well, go back and tell people what you've seen. People are getting healed. Lives are being changed. Things are being transformed. Things are happening that are positive and good. That's the kind of society that we want to be. That's the kind of utopia we're trying to create that we strive for. And yet it is only fully realized in the kingdom of God, which exists eternally as heaven, which we are told is our home, is our eternal place of dwelling. We are actually citizens of heaven. We're here, but we've got a, on our, you know, kind of spiritual passport, it's got a different thing. It says, no, we are citizens of heaven. We are kind of travelers here on this earth. We are ambassadors here on behalf of God, but our citizenship is heaven. And the kingdom of God is the only place where there will be no weeping or crying or pain, where all these things will be gone forever, where restoration will properly and fully be realised now and eternally, where we won't have to deal with troubles and issues anymore, where we won't be offended, where we won't be triggered, where there won't be any of these things that are happening. But on this earth, you cannot and will not, we will not see it fully ever realised because we cannot have the kingdom without the king. The goal of life Rick Warren says, is not comfort, therefore. Despite what the world tells you, get comfortable. Have stuff. I'm not saying stuff's bad, but the world will say if you've got enough stuff and you've got the right insurances and you, you know, respect this and that and all, all kinds of different rules that society seems to be inventing and creating as it goes, if you do all these things, then you'll be comfortable. And then a new problem comes along. Oh, we're uncomfortable again. Well, let's create a new set of facts that we've got to go with. The world tells you you need to be comfortable. But Rick Warren and Scripture and Jesus tells us that this is not the purpose of life. If it is, we're going to be very disappointed because trouble will keep coming. As a disciple of Jesus, you are promised that utopia that the world is trying to create and that promise is the hope of heaven, eternal life. But that is not this place. This place is the place for character development. Like it or not, this place is a place which takes us from what we are at birth and develops us and builds us up or smashes us down over the course of our lives and then we die. Sounds pretty morbid, doesn't it? <laughs> Lois clapped. Thanks, Lois. But that's pretty much, Josh talked about it in week one where without God, there is what is the purpose of life? The fact of the matter is this life is for character development or, or sorry, it is not just for character development, but the byproduct of us being here is that our character will be developed on our way towards heaven. 
which is that utopia, which is that thing that we yearn for. You know, the, in the Word it tells us that God has put eternity in our hearts. Every single human being on this earth, God has put eternity in their hearts. There's some element of people that desires for there to be something more, something greater, something beyond what is visceral, something beyond what they can see with their own eyes. If there is no God, that is the only desire that is not quenched by something on this earth. We have eternity in our hearts. We desire to see the kingdom of God here on earth. And so humanity spends all its time trying to do it, but it can't because it needs the king. Anyway, now I'm ranting. In this life, you will have trouble, Jesus says. Everyone will. The difference between us as believers, as disciples of Jesus and others, is that we can know that God can use our trouble for eternal benefit. The person out on the street at the moment, until they, you know, until we go and see them become Christians, before they come to faith, the average person on the street doesn't have hope in trouble. How can you have hope in trouble? Maybe there's some kind of um, made-up hope that you can, you can, you know, just stay positive and all these things we tell ourselves, but really the eternal hope is not there. But for us, it is. And thirdly, my, my final uh, point on why God desires to build godly character in us is that our character, when it's godly, produces trust in God. You know, it isn't natural for us to trust God in times of trouble. It is not natural. It is supernatural. That's why it's one of the most purely Jesus-like things that we can possibly do. When we trust and put our trust in Jesus in times of trouble, in God in times of trouble, it is one of the most purely Jesus-like, Christ-like things that we can possibly do. And remember, one of our purpose is to become more like Jesus, to become like God's Son. The night before Jesus was crucified on the cross, we read in Mark 14 that he became deeply troubled and distressed. Again, that word flips us. He became constricted. There was no way out. Verse 34, he told his disciples, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. This is Jesus. My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. The troubles, the thlipsis that I'm facing right now, that I'm experiencing right now is crushing me. And he continues to pray. And eventually, and this is beautiful, what Jesus concludes in verse 36, he says, Father God, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Your will, not my will, be done. You know, Jesus trusted God because of the hope He had for what was on the other side of His trouble. And we read in Hebrews 12 too, it was because of the joy awaiting Him that He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. What was the joy awaiting Jesus? The joy awaiting Jesus on the other side of His suffering was relationship restored with us for eternity. Was the fact that these children that had been lost, the sheep that had gone away were now being restored into the sheepfold, that there was going to be restoration between God and humanity again, something that had not happened for millennia upon millennia. That was the joy that awaited him on the other side of this crushing trouble that he was about to experience. And this is why he went to the cross and endured its shame. And you know, I've realised that those, it seems crazy to me, that those often who have suffered the most those Christians who have suffered the most often be, seem to be the most confident and keen for heaven. 
I'm not saying every single one. I'm sure there's people who, who, who suffer and have trouble and, and they fall away. And I, and I totally understand why, because it would be difficult. But the people that I see, the Christians that I've looked up to over the years, who seem the most confident and keen and assured of their salvation are those, coincidentally perhaps, not, who have experienced the most trouble, the most suffering, the most awful things in their lives. Because like Jesus, they tell me, they've got something there awaiting on the other side of this suffering too. Like Jesus, they're choosing to put their trust in God that He will keep His Word. And as godly character develops, our trust in God's promise of salvation develops too. We saw in that verse before, godly character produces hope of our salvation. The end result is that at the end of the day, when the troubles come, when we're crushed, when we face those troubles and trials, the end result of this is that I will have a godly hope of my salvation, a trust in God that is unwavering, unshaking. What else can be done to me? I know where I'm going. I know where I'm from and I know why I'm here. The trouble may come and I expect it. I don't know what it's going to be and I at times will dread it. At times I'll feel crushed by it as Jesus did, but I have a hope and I have a truth that I am standing on. God, You have promised me eternal life where these things will not be anymore. There will be no weeping, no crying, no pain, no affliction, no offence. That is the promise of God. You know, I was thinking about um, that kind of thing. I'm thinking about uh, my grandma. My dad's here this morning, my dad's mum. She's the kind of person who, I know she's had various troubles in her life. Lost her husband before I was born. I know she hasn't, didn't have the easiest upbringing. Lost siblings, etc. And every time I talk to her, she's 94, 94 now. Every time I talk to her, I'm like, come on, Grand, you've got to get to 100. And she's like, no, no, no. I want to go to Jesus way before that. She's ready. She's keen. And it's not like a bitterness keen. It's not like she's sitting there going, oh, life sucks. I want to die. She's just so keen to be with her Saviour. Jesus is as a friend to her, as much as any friend I have that is literally in front of me in this world. Jesus is, is that to her, right? It's like He's right there. Despite the suffering, despite the trouble, there is this joy that is awaiting her. And I find it beautiful. And I hope I'm like that too. So God really can work trouble for our good. He uses it to develop godly character in us. And, he, and this is important. He, he desires godly character in us because our character firstly determines our deeds, determines our actions, determines the way we live, whether that's reflective of Jesus or not. Secondly, our character has an internal, eternal importance. We can't take our career or anything else with us when we go. We can only take our character. And thirdly, ultimately, because godly character produces trust in God, it surpasses all understanding. It surpasses what makes sense and what doesn't and surpasses the situation that is in front of us. I wonder this morning how many of us can relate or resonate with Jesus' statement of, Father, please take this cup of suffering from me. Maybe you've walked in here this morning and you are suffering. You are facing something, some form of trouble, some form of circumstance or trial and you're going, God, I don't know how I'm going to deal with this. I'm feeling crushed. I'm feeling like I'm hemmed in. 
I'm feeling like there's no way out. Whether it's actually big or small doesn't matter because it's something that's feeling big to you right now. When Jesus felt crushed by the troubles He faced, as we read, He submitted them to God. He said, God, this is what I want. This is how I want you to work it out. But not my will, but yours be done. Today and every day is our opportunity, your opportunity to do exactly the same. I'm not saying you have to like it. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. None of those things. Thank God we have a church family to go through these things with. But today is your opportunity to pray that same prayer Jesus prayed. Father, would you take this suffering from me? Would you work some good in this trial, trouble? Would you take it away? Would you resolve it? God, would you, would you take it from me? But God, not my will, but yours be done. Today and every day is our chance to submit our trouble to Jesus. Jesus, this is what I want you to do, but help me to trust you. This morning, as we sing this next song, it's about speaking the name of Jesus over a bunch of different situations in our lives, all kinds of things. You might know the song already. And as we sing this together this morning, I want to encourage you to take the opportunity to pray that prayer to God. God, whatever the suffering is that has come upon my life recently, would you take it from me? But not my will, but your will be done. And would you begin, as this song leads, to speak the name of Jesus over those circumstances? Thanks for listening to this message from Port Life Church. If you have any questions, please email info at portlife.org.au. Have a great day.